Hey, good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you this evening. It's nice to be speaking to you. As Toby said, my name is Josh. I'm one of the clergy here, if we've not met before. Um, I was laughing at my notes just now. My notes, the first thing I'd written on my notes for this talk tonight when I wrote it earlier this week was Movember Disclaimer. And it was make sure everyone knows that it's a Movember, that you don't think it looks good, that it'll be gone by December, and you know it's creepy. Um, but something terrible happened in the Bradshaw household this week. On Friday, uh, my wife Hannah and I have a seven-month-old son called Amos, um, and we realized a while ago that we had all these great photos of other people with Amos, or each other with Amos, but none of the three of us. So we booked the wonderful Christy Stott photography. Um, yeah, great for all your photography needs. For a little family photo shoot months ago. And it was actually this Friday. And uh, so there was some drama in the, the Bradshaw household just before that. And I was told, you know, under no uncertain terms, that I wasn't to ruin our family photo shoot with that creepy thing. So I had to shave off my Movember and start again. So the disclaimer is kind of redundant. Um, but yeah, that did make me laugh as I saw that in my notes. Anyway, as uh, Toby said, um, I am carrying on our I Am sermon series today. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus makes seven I Am statements uh, throughout John, which point to who he is, what his character is, and what he came to do. Two weeks ago, Betty kicked us off looking at Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life, that Jesus is the one who can satisfy your needs. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy your needs, and that faith in Jesus sustains you. And then last week, Toby spoke on the statement, I am the light of the world, and how as disciples, we're called to welcome the light, to walk in the light, and to witness to the light. Today, we're carrying on looking at Jesus' next statement, I am the good shepherd. So grab your Bibles, your phones, or turn your eyes to the screens, and we're going to read together John 10, 11 to 21. Starting at verse 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus talking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So I grew up in a small town in Devon called Tiverton. You may have heard of it from that time you drove through it to get to where you were actually going. 
Um, and in Tiverton, I was there a few, uh, a couple of years ago. I was down visiting my parents, um, and I went to the Morrisons in Tiverton. And the Morrisons in Tiverton has what is potentially the worst designed car park in the UK. It's basically like the car park version of an Ikea. Like, the whole thing is designed so that once you've come out of your bay, you have to go all the way around the outside and back out so you can leave, right? And the other thing that you need to know about Tiverton is that the driving standards there are incredibly poor. Like, Hannah and I have to always remind ourselves of this when we go to Tiverton. You've got to, like, have that little reality check on your way and, like, go steady, because... No one here understands how a roundabout works. Um, so those two things together combined make this Morrison's car park situation, you know, the crazy design and the elongated exit and the poor driving standards combined to make this car park have a real aggy vibe, you know? And I can see that you're captivated. You're sitting there like, is he really telling a story about a small town Morrison's car park? Yeah, I am. And I've got the microphone, so suck it up. But basically, this day, I was coming out of Morrison's, yeah, and in front of me was a family of four. They were like a few meters ahead, and they were going across the zebra crossing that like, led them back to their car. And in the lead was the dad, and he was doing, you know, the classic alpha male test of our time. How many shopping bags can you carry at one time so that you don't have to make two trips? And so he had, like, huge bags of shopping. His fingers were clearly getting guillotined off. So he was, like, pacing it to the car as quickly as possible in the lead, leaving his family in his wake. And so just behind him was the mum. She was trying to keep up. Just behind them, there was another kid who was, like probably six. I'm pretty bad with gauging children's ages. He was a child. He knew enough to keep up with his parents. And then behind them was another kid who was probably like three, four. He was proper small. And the two kids were eating ice creams. The kid in the front, he seemed like he had it all together. Most of his was going in his mouth. The kid at the back was covered in ice cream. And he was just staring into it as he walked along. Like, it held all the answers to life's biggest questions, you know. He was, he was obsessed with this ice cream. And I basically, I was watching that because it was quite funny. And then I looked to my right, and I saw this Citroen Saxo come round the corner. And he basically, he'd, he's now hit the home straight, you know. He's done the, like, the stupid wiggle around the outside. He's made the bend. And then you've got this long straight before you can leave, which heads towards this zebra crossing. And... You know, I looked and I saw, and he was screeching, and I thought, that guy's driving way too fast to be in a car park. He's too excited to have been in this home straight. And then I looked back, and the kid at the back, like, had got quite far away from his parents. They were quite far away now. And he tripped, too focused on his ice cream. He tripped and landed on his knees. And he kind of went into a bit of a shock, like kids do when they fall, and they're like, whoa, what just happened? Um, and froze. And I looked back to my right, and I saw this car accelerating still really heavily. And I noticed that the absolute prune who was driving it was on their phone. And they were getting closer and closer to this zebra crossing, where this child was now, like, head at bumper height. And I thought, oh, my word, something really bad is about to happen. So, I don't know where this came from, because I've always been a terrible rugby player. But I dropped my shopping bags, and I sprinted forwards... And I basically dived and grabbed this kid 
and turned in midair. It was like some sort of, it was like some sort of matrix thing. So that this child landed on me instead of the other way around, which would have probably caused him equal harm to the car. Um, and I managed to get this kid out of the way and clear this car just as the car went like sliding past my feet. Um, and the guy left the roundabout having not even noticed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See, this was kind of the reception I was expecting at the time. I like, I, I was in a bit of shock myself. I, I dusted the kid off. I was like, are you all right? The kid was like, don't know whether he couldn't talk or whether he was in shock, but he was like, um, and I like stood up and dusted myself off a bit and I was like, whoa. And I stood there in anticipation, waiting for the roar of the crowd. You know, the like, the adoration of people around to just break out in uncontrollable applause at this self-sacrificial, heroic, superhero-like feat of like incredibleness that had just saved this child from untold peril. And I thought, like, maybe they'd lift me up and, like, parade me through the town. And, like, they'd, at the very least, that Morrison's would be renamed after me. Um, and you know what I heard? Stony silence until I heard the kid's mum having a go at him for dropping his ice cream. Like, baffling. Like, she'd finally noticed that the kid wasn't there. And then was just like, mate, you've dropped your ice cream. And I just didn't know what to do. It was not the heroic thing that I'd been expecting after this moment. You know, this was my heroic saviour moment, and this was not the reception I was expecting. So I wandered back to the car with nothing to show for it except a ripped pair of jeans. And this is basically how I feel when I read this statement from Jesus, I am the good shepherd. Jesus, the God of the whole universe, right? who created everything, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, the one who made humanity with our bodies and their insane design, like the one who made all of that, the one who sculpted the mountains and brought, you know, everything you've ever seen that was so beautiful that it took your breath away, the one who made all of that, Jesus, the one who then came to earth and redeemed his own creation by becoming one of them and therefore forever placing dignity on humanity. The one who is about to go to war against evil in the greatest display of self-sacrificial love the world would ever see to defeat evil and death and rob them of all their power. Jesus the King, the risen conqueror. That Jesus, when describing what he's like, says, I'm the good shepherd. What is that about? It seems so anticlimactic, you know? Like, not the words I would have gone with, Jesus, if it was me. Um, so what is that about? Like, what does that tell us? Because I think in the very nature of the choice of those words, we see something of the heart of Jesus. And I think the first thing this declaration shows us is that you are known by the shepherd. If you're anything like me, you see a sheep and you're like, yeah. It's a sheep. And then if you look at a whole field of them, you're like, yeah, it's a lot of sheep. I probably couldn't tell any of them apart. They all look like sheep, right? But I've got a mate who is a sheep farmer. Classic Devon. There we go again. Um, and he can genuinely tell each of his sheep apart. You know, in a herd of hundreds, he can tell them all apart from one another. And that seems mental to me, right? But when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. 
just like I can tell my dog from other dogs of the same breed. Because my friend was there when all of his sheep were born, you know. He helped them be born. And he took care of them when they were little lambs and the ones that were struggling. He took inside his house to keep them warm. And, you know, he watched them grow and he feeds them daily. And he treats their injuries and diseases like he knows them. And that is the imagery that Jesus uses for us. You are known by God. Verse 14 read, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. When Jesus says, the Father knows me, he doesn't mean that he knows about him or that he knows things about him or even that he's like acquainted with him, but that he enjoys an intimate, deep and personal relationship with him. And the insane thing is, that's the relationship that Jesus extends to his sheep. That's what he says about you and me. You are known by God in an intimate and personal way, and he invites you into personal relationships. Psalm 103, 14 says, for he, that's God, for he knows our frame. It means he knows you because he made you. He gave you life. The breath that you breathe is his gift to you. And he made that as well. You know, he knows how you tick. God knows you and he wants to know you. As I said earlier, I'm one of the clergy here at St. Nick's, which is one of many confusing and strangely religious terms for my job. You've got clergy, curate, deacon, priest. And if all else fails, I usually go for vicar, because even though I'm not technically a vicar, most people seem to know what a vicar is or have some concept of what that means. And this role often lends to me having some rather hilarious conversations with people from outside the church when asked what I do for a living, because apparently I don't look like they expect a vicar to look. I imagine it's the lack of nostril hair or robes, I don't know. Um, But I usually get some quite funny comments about tattoos or motorbikes or other funny things like that. Um, And the other day I was having a couple of pints with a mate of mine in Bristol, and then his girlfriend and her friend came to join us. And I asked this person what they did, and then I I listened rather intently as she explained what a Reiki practitioner was, thinking it would be quite funny when she asked me what I did. Um, And when she did, and I told her, she said, what? And then she stared at me for a little bit, and then she was like, so you have like a flock then? (laughs) Which I found very entertaining. That one was new on me. I've not heard that one before. (laughs) Um... But where that question is coming from is that kind of old school language of a church congregation being like a flock. And the vicar is supposed to be like the shepherd and to like take care of them and check how they are. And it's one of those things that's based on like a beautiful ideal, right? Like the church leader taking part in the role of Jesus. um, That everyone would be known and everyone would be cared for. And in this church, we try our best to do that. But it's not that realistic, is it? I mean, maybe it worked in a little village like 200 years ago, but I'm doubtful that it even worked then. And if we have that mentality, we're just bound to be disappointed, aren't we? Like whether because of our own weaknesses or vulnerabilities or because of the masks that we all wear, which sometimes never come down, or because of our society that tells us we're better connected than ever, right, whilst robbing us of all the human contact that we need, it can be so hard to be known to be truly known, to be truly seen. 
As much as we try both to know and to see each other and to be known and seen by one another, which is obviously so important, it can be so hard to be known, to be truly known and truly seen. But Jesus says, I know you. On the days when you feel unseen, when you couldn't begin to explain to anyone else what you're going through, what's going on in your head, or how you're feeling, Jesus says, I know you. I know all your ways. I feel all that you feel. On the days when you feel forgotten, lonely, and isolated, Jesus says, I know you. I want to know you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. On the days when you feel like a phony in worship or like a bad Christian, and you're telling yourself that age-old lie that if these people, if only they knew that thing about me, if only they knew that thing I did or that thing I thought, then they'd turn away from me. Jesus says, I know you. I know all of you. I know those parts of yourself that you feel the most shame about. Those parts that you hide from the world, those thoughts, those deeds, I know them. And his response is not to turn away from you in that moment, but to draw closer to you. His love for you bubbles up uncontrollably when he looks at those parts of you which you think are most unpresentable to the world. When I met my wife, Hannah, obviously she pursued me immediately, you know? <laughs> And, and for a long time, I was quite oblivious. And when I met Hannah, I had a lot of commitment-phobic issues um, from previous stuff in my life. And I was terrified of the idea of commitment. And I think I was in denial about the fact that I liked Hannah, which led to this quite funny incident. Funny to look back on now, not so funny at the time. When Hannah and I had been alone together on a rare occasion, and Hannah said that she liked me, which threw me into absolute panic. And I said, well, you shouldn't. <laughs> because, and then I started to list all the worst things I'd ever done. Starting at like youth and going through to like being an adult. I told Hannah in detail the worst things I'd ever done. The things I was most ashamed of. I think in an attempt that she'd be like, oh, you're a horrible human being. Like, get away from me. And you know what? I finished this spiel of all these terrible things that I'd done, all the things that I was most ashamed of in my life. And Hannah said to me, Jesus doesn't hold that against you, and neither do I. And to be truly known, to put yourself on the line and be truly known, and then to have that met with love rather than rejection is the greatest feeling that we can ever experience. It's liberating. It sets us free. It allows us to be who we were made to be rather than that person we're constantly pretending to be or trying to be. And that is what we have in Jesus. You are known by the shepherd. Jesus knows you. He wants to know you. And the result of that knowledge, when he sees you, warts and all, the result of that knowledge is that he loves you all the more. I think the second beautiful thing that we see in this passage from this title that Jesus gives himself, I am the good shepherd, is that the shepherd gave it all for you. As I've said, I think the God of all creation, the author of time and space and everything exists, describing himself as a good shepherd is pretty shocking, right? 
That's not normally the way we see people with power act, is it? You know, he doesn't say, I'm the greatest, I'm the best God ever, the best creator, everybody says so. He says, I'm a good shepherd. And isn't that just such a small example of the heart of Jesus? Such a small example, because it doesn't end there. The very fact that Jesus is even there, to be saying these words from a human mouth in a human body, walking on an earth that is so messy and so broken, speaking to a bunch of people who are broken and make mistakes and do such messed up things to each other, rather than being in a heavenly palace, upon a throne being worshipped and adored by the angels, is astounding in itself, right? And yet it still doesn't end there. Verse 15 read, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 18 says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He gave himself for you, and he chose to do it. In Galatians, Paul says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The God of the entire universe allowed himself to be stripped and beaten and force-marched, carrying the method of his own execution, nailed to a cross and suffocated in the most agonizing death imaginable, let alone the spiritual weight of what was happening, which is inconceivable. And when he did it, he was thinking about you. He was there for you, and he chose to do it for you. The cross wasn't some sort of scrambled plan B. The cross was the moment that the whole of human history points to and away from. The Trinity planned it between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at the dawn of time to show you what you mean to God. The overwhelming heart God has to bring you home, to heal you and set you free and be close to you in relationship. I was discipled under a maxim from an old hymn, tell me often, for I forget too soon. My university church had that carved into big stone letters above the door as you go in. Tell me often, for I forget too soon. The point being that the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves you and gave himself for you, can somehow so easily become like old news to us. I don't know if it's the first time you've heard it or the thousandth time you've heard it. But it should never fail to astound. It should never fail to give hope. It should never fail to bring freedom. It should never fail to spur us on in the way of Jesus. That we can have a life in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So you are known by the shepherd. And out of that knowledge, that intimate knowledge of you, that warts and all knowledge that God has of who you are, the shepherd chooses to give it all for you. And my final point this evening is that you can be guided by the shepherd. Carrying on to unpick this shepherd imagery that Jesus has chosen to use. In the context of the time Jesus was speaking, he's deliberately using imagery that everyone could understand. It was a rural context, but it was much more untamed than the landscape we have today. And so everyone would have understood that a shepherd would have to fight off wild animals. Shepherds would keep their sheep overnight in these like circular walled pens 
and they had a gap for the door, but there wasn't an actual door. So the shepherd would lie in the gap of the door to protect the sheep. So everyone would have got that it's like a body on the line type job. Although the expression, I lay down my life for the sheep, would have pricked people's ears. They would have understood that you've got to be willing to fight off stuff and fight off wolves and all that kind of thing. But to lay down your life makes no sense, right? Because if you do that, then the sheep are just left defenseless anyway. And the reason that Jesus says this is that he's overextending the metaphor beyond its natural limits. And this overextension of the metaphor has a meaning which is captured in the second half of verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Because the cross was not the end of the story. The grave could not hold him. Death had no claim on Jesus. The shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. But rather than that leaving them defenseless, in overthrowing death through his resurrection, he defeats the very threat to the sheep in the first place. Jesus is alive. Jesus has overcome. And the same heart that took Jesus to the cross for you beats today in his desire to guide you in every minute, in every moment, in every day, deeper and deeper into fullness of life. A shepherd would guide their sheep by their voice, call them away from the things that would lead them to harm, guide them towards food and shelter, call them into greener pastures when the time was right, guide them to water. The shepherd would use his voice to direct the sheep towards all the things that they needed to thrive. And Jesus longs to do the same for you. In verse 16, we see this beautiful fact. It says, they too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus longs to speak to us today, to guide us by his voice as the gentle shepherd, to speak to us about our life about our relationship with him, about the direction that he's calling us to go in, to guide us into more freedom, more joy, more fulfillment. He wants to speak to you about your work. He wants to speak to you about your rest, about your relationships, about the way we spend our time, about the way we spend our money, about the people who are in our life, about how he's going to use us in his mission to make all things new. The shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep continues to guide them now. I had this really cool moment of guidance the other day. Um, One of my mates from back in Devon was coming up to stay uh, for the weekend with his fiancée. And neither of them are Christians, so I prayed before, um, saying, you know, God, you know, he's never been very receptive to us chatting about faith. Like, it'd be so cool if we could just have, like, one sentence back and forth about faith. That would be really great. And, um, and while they were there, um, it, it got to like 10, and Hannah took our son to bed, which is what you've got to do when you've not slept in seven months. Um, and time went by, and I thought, you know, oh, every time I kind of had that desire to like, oh, when this conversation bit ends, I'm going to go to bed, you know, looking at the clock. I just got this really strong sense, no, don't go to bed. Like, not yet. And it was really weird. And time went by, and I'd be like, oh, right, I need, really need to go to bed now. And it was like, mm, no, not yet. Um, and then I was desperate. I was like, look, Lord, you can stay up if you want, but I haven't slept in seven months properly. I desperately need to go to bed. And it was not yet. And then my friend noticed 
our son's Jesus storybook Bible on the shelf. Best translation of the Bible, by the way. If you don't have one, get one. It's amazing. Um, and he said, oh, is that Amos' Bible? And I just got this really strong sense, make a joke about that. So I was like, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, got to start the indoctrination young. <laughs> and then my friend laughed at that. And that just led into this massive conversation about faith. And he just started asking me all these questions about, you know, you know, do you think you'd be a Christian if your family weren't? And what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And it was so beautiful because for the first time ever, we were having conversations about like relationship with Jesus rather than like weird church stuff or like religion or anything like that. And, and God had just led this kind of beautiful thing where he asked all these amazing questions, and now he's really keen to do an alpha. He's going to look for an alpha uh, near him in Devon, which is so exciting. And that's just like one way that God guides us, right? He guides us by so many ways. He primarily guides us by the Bible, he got, but he also guides us by the church, you know. He guides us by those he's placed around us in our, in our homes or in our hubs. He guides us by his spirit. He guides us by miraculous signs. He guides us in so many ways. And I just love that thing from the other day so much with my mate because it shows Jesus' heart for my friend. Like we see in verse 16 where he says, you know, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. I love that. But I also love it because it shows Jesus' heart to guide me and to keep directing me in the day-to-day of life, which is such a source of hope for me on those days when I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, which I don't know about you, but happens to me quite a lot. Those days where I don't know where to turn or I don't know what the right thing to do is or where I should be investing my time or my energy or what I should be moving towards or what I should be moving away from. I can take comfort in the knowledge that the shepherd loves to speak to me, to guide me, to direct me. He delights in guiding us and his guidance is always good. It's always right. So tonight you can know that Jesus is the good shepherd that we are known by God, that we are fully known, and that God's reaction to that knowledge is to love us, and that that love has teeth. It's not just a feeling that God has for you, but something that he has shown by giving it all for you, for laying down his life, giving himself. And we can know that the shepherd wants to lead us. He wants to lead you with his gentle voice day by day. What might God be leading you into this evening? That is the question that we're going to ask God now together.